Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have all power. You have all strength. You have all might. You have all authority. And Lord, we need that authority. We need that strength because we are in a battle and our enemy is stronger than we are. But his strength is nothing compared to yours. So I pray, God, that you would give us strength as we study your word. Give us strength as we think about the book of Ephesians. Help us today, Lord, to put on the armor that you've given us, the armor that Christ has won for us, and let us stand in the victory that he has won. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, my friends, to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how every page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thanks for joining me. Well, welcome to the last episode uh, of our series in Ephesians. So we have looked at six themes so far in the book of Ephesians. And tonight we're going to look at our seventh and final theme, and that is Paul in Ephesians challenged them to stand firm against the devil. Now, friends, we live in a world, we live in a culture, a society that wants to believe that all there is is the physical, material world. And sometimes even as Christians, we can fall into this same trap. But the fact of the matter is, we live in an open universe. We live in a universe that, yes, obviously has material stuff, atoms and molecules and cells, but we also live in a universe that has a spiritual component. God exists, Satan exists, angels and demons exist, and perhaps no other city that we read about in the New Testament was this spiritual battle front and center like it was in Ephesus. So I'm going to read to you Acts 19, 11 through 20. Just to give you a little bit of a taste of what it was like when Paul came to this city. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's very obvious from this passage that Satan was incredibly active in the city of Ephesus. We see demonic possession, not just one or two, but apparently a fairly common event in this city. And we also know that the temple to Artemis, uh, one of the Greek gods, a false god, copied from demonic forces, was also located in Ephesus. So this was a a hot spot of dark spiritual activity. And there were people who practiced magic. Now, when I say people who practice magic, there's probably three types of people that pop into your mind. The first would be the kind of guy who pulls a rabbit out of a hat at a kid's birthday party. And we all know that this person isn't really claiming to know any sort of magic. The second person you might think about would be someone like David Copperfield or David Blaine, someone who's more of a professional illusionist, uh, who's really just putting on a show and a spectacle, but isn't pretending to actually have magic powers. The third type of person you might be thinking of would be someone like uh, a fortune teller, somebody who you might go in and they're actually trying to 
scam people out of money by pretending that they can tap into dark spiritual forces. But there's a fourth category that I think we need to have in mind when we think about magic and we think about demons. And I would take you back to the book of Exodus. When Moses and Aaron arrive in Egypt and begin to do miraculous signs to the power of God before Pharaoh in order to convince him to let the people of Israel go, it says that his magicians, up to a point, are able to imitate and to copy the miracles that Aaron is able to do. Aaron throws his staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. They throw their staffs on the ground, it becomes a snake. Aaron pours water on the ground, it becomes blood. They pour water on the ground, and it becomes blood. And we're left to wonder, how could they possibly do this? Well, guys, Satan has power. Satan has been given authority over this world. Now, as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He can't do anything apart from the will of God, but he does have power. And there are people back then, there are people right now, who have tapped into this power, that have made themselves a conduit for dark spiritual forces, and they are both a victim and a villain in this particular play. And it seems that there were many people like this in Ephesus that by the grace of God were rescued from this life that was leading to eternal damnation, and they became followers of Jesus. But now that they're followers of Jesus, the question arises, What about those dark spiritual forces that we used to traffic with? What about those dark spiritual forces that we used to do business with? Are we safe from them? And so in Ephesians, Paul addresses spiritual warfare. When he writes to the Ephesian church, he's describing what they were like before they were saved. Ephesians 2.2 says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul knows all too well that Satan is always looking for a foothold in the lives of a Christian. He can't possess us like he once was able to, but he wants to find just some kind of crack in the wall, a chink in the armor that he can get in and start to wreak havoc in the life of a believer. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. So to the Ephesian church, Paul gives two reasons that they should have great confidence The first is that God seating them with Christ meant they shared Christ's position. Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says God raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, Paul prays that we would know the power. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When it talks about Jesus being seated far above rule and authority and power and dominion, it's saying that Jesus is seated far above demons, far above Satan. But don't think far above in terms of like the nosebleed seats at a football stadium. Think far above as in in authority, judging them, ruling over them. And remember what we said, friends, because of our union with Christ, everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. If Christ is seated in authority, we are seated in authority over the devil. We have authority over Satan insofar as we are united to Christ. And when we're called to stand firm against the devil, one of the things we're standing firm in is a belief and faith that Jesus has conquered our enemy, and we're fighting from the victory that Christ has already won for us. The second reason that we are given to have great confidence in this battle is that God had equipped the Ephesian church and all believers for spiritual battle. And this brings us to the famous armor of God passage. 
I'm going to read it to you. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As I'm recording this, I'm uh, I'm listening to a podcast uh, going battle by battle through World War One, and the narrator is covering the Russian army and their entrance into the war. And Russia came to battle with a vastly numerically superior army to all of their foes, but Russia had very little in the way of weapons. So in one battle, Russia sent an army of about half a million men into battle, and only a couple hundred thousand of those men had guns. More than half of their soldiers didn't have weapons, and they were to just follow along, and when one of their comrades was shot, they were to pick up the weapon and keep going. Many of them didn't have shoes, they didn't have winter coats, and it was absolutely miserable for a Russian soldier in World War I. Friends, that is not the case for us. We have not been sent out into battle with nothing but our wits against us and the devil. We've been sent out with the whole armor of God. Now, a couple of notes about this armor of God. One, this almost all of this imagery is pulled from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah. So I'd encourage you to dig into these phrases and see where Isaiah uses them and how he uses them. The second would be that this is something we're to keep on at all times. We don't put this on and take this off and, okay, I'm going into work today. Let me put on my armor. Okay, I'm home for the weekend. Let me take off my armor. No, remember, we don't want to give the devil any kind of foothold in our life. So we keep this on constantly. Another observation about this armor, this is armor, if you want to think of it in this way, that Jesus won for us. Jesus conquered and paid for this armor so that we can wear it. But I think even more importantly than that, this armor is the character of Christ. The armor of God is living like Jesus. It's living with truth. It's living in righteousness. It's living ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. It's living by faith. It's living in the salvation that Christ has won for us. And it's living by the word of God, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And friends, this is what Jesus perfectly modeled for us. So don't look for spiritual victory apart from Christ. Spiritual victory will come through your imitation of Christ. And if we imitate Christ, if in the power of the Spirit, in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of His might, we imitate Jesus, then we can be strong, we can stand firm, and we can live out the victory that we have in Christ, and we can see other captives released as we proclaim the gospel. So friends, the next time we're together, we will begin exploring the book of 1 Corinthians. But for now, take up and read. God bless. 